Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine The Latest. Today we discuss how the International Olympic Committee has banned Russian athletes from the Asian Games and look at the latest threats to undersea cables. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 28th of September, one year and 216 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by senior tech reporter Gareth Caulfield. I started by giving the latest updates from the front lines. And let's start with the... Russia launched a massive drone attack overnight. That was, according to Kiev, their words, massive. Russian drones intercepted over well, a lot of the country, mainly... Uh, down south, the Black Sea coastal region, and also further inland, Natalia Gumenyuk, who's the spokeswoman for the Ukrainian Southern Military Command, said. Uh, Ukraine's air force said that it's, um, the air defense has shot down 34 of 44 Shahid drones, the Shahid 136 drones. Ms. Gumenyuk said tonight several groups of strike UAVs, so UAV is uh, uninhabited air vehicle drones. Uh, Tonight, several groups of strike UAVs were launched. Air defence worked along almost the entire southern direction in Odessa, Mikhailov regions. Also much higher north, the enemy aimed its attacks on central Ukraine. Then Odessa regional governor, Oleg Kipa, said that his region had been the main target, um, but that there had been no casualties. He said our defence forces did an excellent job, no hits or destruction. There were no casualties. There were only a few small fires on dry grass as a result of the falling wreckage of the downed Shahid. So don't know where the other 10 went. We'll, um, we'll keep an eye on that. Separately, down in, in the um, natural ground itself, so Ukrainian forces marginally advanced around Bakhmut and down south over the last few days. So geolocated footage shows Ukrainian forces have been on the advance just to the north of Bakhmut, and then they're continuing the pressure on the high ground to the south of that uh, of the city there, what's left of the city, and then down south. If we go to the sort of main, the main thrust, that big, the salient around uh, or south of Orkiv, west of Above. So additional geolocated footage shows that Russian forces no longer control about a one-kilometer-long trench west of Above. So the absence of Russian forces in that line could allow further Ukrainian advances in the area. We think they're already through the first and what is assessed to be the main line of defence down there. Other lines do exist, but how well populated they are, we do not know. 
but that trench line would have been a significant obstacle and the fact that they're through it and over it is um just shows that they're advancing there albeit at a you know a slow rate but it's all going in the right direction for ukraine so commander of the ukrainian tavrysk group of forces that's brigadier general alexander tarnevsky he said there will be good news in the zaporizhia operational direction and noted that uh, ukrainian forces are steadily advancing didn't give any further information there now, today in uh, in Kiev, Britain's new Defence Secretary, Grant Shapps, he's met, uh, mes- met President Zelensky. Uh, this is Grant Shapps' second visit to Kiev in two months, his first as a Defence Secretary. He was accompanied by the Chief of the Defence Staff, the Head of Britain's Armed Forces, Admiral Sir Tony Radikin. They held meetings with President Zelensky and the new uh, Ukrainian Defence Minister, Rustem Umarov. So Grant Shapps said it was an honour to meet President Zelensky in Kiev to assure him that the UK will continue to stand shoulder to shoulder with Ukraine, as we have since Putin illegally invaded Crimea nearly 10 years ago. He carried on, We have trained tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers, delivered hundreds of thousands of rounds of ammunition, and provided millions of pounds of economic and humanitarian aid to help Ukraine's citizens reclaim and rebuild what has been taken from them by Putin's barbaric invasion. So he was in Kiev last month in his former role as energy secretary. They were talking about um, Ukraine's recovery then and the uh, preparations for uh, for the winter. So Tony Radikin, Admiral Sir Tony Radikin, who's, the, let's say, the chief of the defence staff, he said they'd uh, they discussed new commitments of military aid that had been uh, pledged in Ramstein last week. That's uh, looking to build strength and resilience through winter and beyond, he says. He said the recent strikes on the Black Sea fleet are another example of how Ukraine retains the initiative. He said Putin has lost control of the war he started and Russia is diminished as a consequence. This visit, together with my visits over the summer, have reinforced my conviction that Ukraine will prevail. The UK will remain with them every step of the way. Responding, President Zelensky uh, put a message out saying that he'd received had received UK Defence Secretary Grant Shapps in Kiev, profoundly grateful to the UK for all the financial, humanitarian and military support including crucial long-range capabilities. And he then said, we discussed further defence cooperation and steps to strengthen Ukraine's air defence. So I think it was quite interesting from that. I, I noted the, um, the pointed reference to cr- crucial long-range capabilities and air defence, quite where Britain and France are with the uh, donations of Storm Shadow and sort of slash Scalp EG. That's what the French call it. It's the same, same cruise missile, Anglo-French cruise missile. We don't know where they are in terms of numbers and how many more are have been pledged. But, um, yeah, President Zelensky making a note there about the crucial long-range capabilities. Also today in Kiev, Martin Harris, Britain's new ambassador to Ukraine. He presented his uh, credentials to President Zelensky. He's wearing a kilt. I didn't recognise the colours. We were Scots DG. We were able to wear the Royal Stuart, which I once proudly displayed in Key West. That's a story for another time. So if anyone can identify the tartan that Martin Harris is wearing, I'd be interested. And then later on this morning, President Zelensky had a joint press conference with Jens Stoltenberg. Uh, Mr. Stoltenberg said Russia's now diminished on the world stage. Uh, they're out of international markets, blah, blah, blah. He then said, interestingly, he, said, he was talking about the Vilnius summit in July. And he said all allies agreed that Ukraine will join NATO. And he said they took three historic decisions to turn this into a reality. Now, you could see this as... Oh, they're just kicking the can down the road. They're, they're putting conditions on, on Ukrainian membership. But equally, by by stating them, you can then tick them off once once they're done and say, "Well, come on, then, where's the uh, where's the membership?" So first, he said, 
that they've reduced the requirement or removed the requirement for a membership action plan for Ukraine. He said, uh, second, we agreed a program to make Ukraine's forces fully interoperable with your future allies. Uh, no time on that. And then um, and then thirdly, he said, uh, we strengthened our political ties to an unprecedented level by establishing the NATO Ukraine Council. So I don't know what that necessarily does in terms of deliverables. But from that, you can see the membership action plan and the um, and the interoperability with Ukraine's forces, then they they are they are things that we can we can look at and measure. Which and so we will. He finished off by saying Ukraine's future is in NATO. As we work together to prepare you for that future, NATO will stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. So pretty unequivocal there from the uh, from the boss of NATO. And just finally, Russia's Olympic chief has criticised the Asian Games organisers for rowing back on a decision to allow athletes from Russia and Belarus to compete at the, the multi-sport event in Hangzhou in China. So the Olympic Council of Asia had voted in July to allow around 500 Russian and Belarusian athletes at the Games. But then the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, stepped in and uh, earlier in September said the nations would not participate due to technical reasons. I think those technical reasons might be half a million Russians camped out in eastern Ukraine, but they didn't elaborate. Russian Olympic Committee President Stanislav Pozhnyakov said the body, that's the IOC, had been, um, sorry, said his organization had been waiting for specifics about their athletes participation but was stonewalled by organizers i I mean i I could probably point give me a ring stanislav i'll give you an i think i've got an idea as to why you why you're not allowed to go he said from the point of view of diplomacy i think that such things are simply unacceptable they did not even inform us that they they reconsidered their decision to invite us that was uh, published by russia's tas the state news agency so it's all kicking off there, except, well, no, nothing's actually kicking off because they haven't been invited. But there we go. Now, um, as I say, a short one today. So delighted now to um, to get Gaz back to the pod. Haven't heard from him for a while. Gaz, this week, I think I'm right in saying this week was a year, marked a year since the mysterious Nord Stream 2 event, explosion, attack, whatever, whatever it was. You've been looking at other weird undersea stuff that's been going on what uh, what update can you give us thanks dom yes it's uh, it's grand to be back on the pod again and uh, yes today's topic from me is indeed underwater infrastructure cables pipelines and so on as you say it's just over a year uh, since the Nord Stream uh, gas pipeline attack which i think pushed the the issue of underwater infrastructure security on into the public imagination. It's one of those topics that only really comes to fore when something has happened. And I think there's a there's quite a lot of how to put this politely, almost ignorance of just how reliant the uh, the current global economy is on underwater infrastructure. And by underwater infrastructure we mean cables, fiber optic cables carrying internet and voice phone call traffic. Uh, we're talking about pipelines, you know, gas pipelines like the um, Nord Stream ones, which were sabotaged a year ago, and also we mean power cables as well. There are you know big electrical interconnectors that run underwater. Some of those feed from offshore wind farms or offshore you know, wave power projects as well. So power, data, and fuel are the main sort of commodities there, and these are really the things that that literally power, uh, literally drive the modern world in which we live today. So when something goes wrong in that world it very rapidly has a big effect. I mean, you know, the, 
the Nord Stream pipeline um, sabotage last year obviously made international headlines as everybody started pointing fingers hither and thither trying to figure out who done it and why. But this is a the topic of a great interest to me. I'm going to sort of trailer here my own feature uh, in this weekend's Sunday Telegraph. So what I did was I popped out to Toulon in South France uh, last week uh, where Orange Marine have just commissioned a new submarine cable repair ship. Now, I didn't know this until I got down there. Uh, there's only a few tens of ships uh, worldwide which are capable of laying cables and of repairing cables, especially when they get damaged for whatever reason. Now, the new ship uh, that Orange Marine uh, christened last week, the Sophie Germain is her name, is a dedicated cable repair ship. She carries something like 800 kilometres of replacement cable that can be uh, patched into a damaged cable to bring it back into service uh, if, for whatever reason, some sort of problem has occurred. And speaking to Orange Marine personnel and to the ship's crew down there, and there's also some surprisingly senior French naval officers at the event. It's really interesting to sort of see partly how guarded they are about when it comes to talking about deliberate cable damage, sabotage, actual attempts to go out and cut them and interfere with them. But also, given that Orange Marine, um, being a French company, obviously has a lot of interests in the Mediterranean, but also out in the Black Sea, um, as, as our listeners know, that's, just, that's the sea that surrounds Crimea and just south of Ukraine, the Eastern Mediterranean and the Red Sea as well, which is the sort of vital conduit between uh, what you might call the Middle East uh, and the Eastern Med via the Suez Canal. So there's an awful lot of communications infrastructure in that part of the world. And one of the questions that does occur immediately is, have, you know, have the Russians been tampering with that? Are they doing things that are calculated to or likely to cause difficulties, interfere with cables to for strategic or tactical advantage or simply just for the hell of it to cut off communications to Ukraine? I mean, I've come on in the past and spoken about Russian cyber targeting of communications infrastructure and data centers and so on in Ukraine. So the question occurs, are they doing that in the Eastern Med, in the Black Sea? Are we seeing deliberate attempts to tamper with them? I have to say, the answer to that from the chief exec of Orange Marine uh, (laughs) was was an unequivocal no. I asked him, has there been an increase in suspicious cable outages or faults or anything like that since the start of Russia's invasion in that area? And his answer to that was also a firm non. So, (laughs) sorry, Didier. So, with that in mind, it's interesting that we're not seeing any evidence of deliberate undersea tampering with cables, or even damage for that matter, over and above the sort of usual problems you get with these things. Now, what are the usual problems? Uh, Orange tells me that that's typically uh, at sort of shallower depths. They, they, they say shallow means sort of 2,000 metres below sea and upwards, which sounds quite deep to me. But when you consider the med, I think is more than six kilometres deep at its deepest point. It, it becomes a bit more contextual there. But anyway, the kind of problems they normally see when it comes to subsea cables going a bit weird uh, tend to be caused by fishermen. Apparently careless fishermen dropping anchor in places they really shouldn't be dropping and then pulling the anchor through the cable is the most common form of damage they see in the southern Black Sea and sort of around the eastern Med area. Um, and you, might, you, know, you, you may ask yourself, well, how is that possible? Surely a little fishing boat anchor couldn't damage uh, a big old armoured subsea cable that's designed to cope with all of this. And the answer is, actually, these cables are not as, as substantial or as heavily armoured as you might imagine. Now, for sure, having said that out loud, the, the power cables, the, the ones that carry electricity at tens or hundreds of thousands of volts, 
they are quite substantially well armoured, as much to prevent marine life from being injured by cable faults or short circuits or what have you, as to protect them against accidental damage. But the fibre optic cables, which is the, the type of cable that the Orange Marine Fleet specialise in, those cables are surprisingly thin. We actually looked at some uh, when we were there in Toulon. And these are maybe the, the width of two or three fingers held together. You just sort of hold your hand up, put your first three fingers together. The cables are about that width, maybe slightly narrower, in fact. They're not really armoured. You know, the cables designed for the um, depths below two kilometres are just they're sheathed in plastic and there are fibre optic strands within them. Those strands are, you know, sort of maybe the, the thickness of a human hair or two, and there's maybe a few dozen of those crammed inside the cable. But otherwise, these are quite vulnerable pieces of infrastructure. So it is interesting as to how Russia hasn't decided to target those, whether you know, deliberately or, air quotes, accidentally, unquote. Uh, and I'm writing about this at length in the Sunday Telegraph this weekend, where I'm going to explore some of those questions, and hopefully <laughs> uh, we will have some interesting and thought-provoking answers. I mean, so far, obviously, we've spoken to Orange Marine, uh, we've spoken to some French naval, naval personnel, we've spoken to some ex-British Royal Navy personnel, or British ex-Royal Navy personnel, I should say, and there's some other experts who I'm teeing up to speak to uh, today and tomorrow, ready for that article to be, that feature to be published. So good, good listeners, watch this space. <laughs> but in terms of the, of the current challenge, I'm told that when it comes to securing these cables, it is essentially a, a task of waiting for a fault to occur. And as soon as a fault occurs, and a fault might be there's a degraded signal on one of the fibres, it's not necessarily that the whole thing goes down. You know, there are failure modes where something isn't quite right, the signal's not as strong as it ought to be, the traffic carrying capacity suddenly drops for no good reason. And when that happens, you know, you have to send out a cable repair ship and their job is to go and fish it up from the depths. But I was speaking to Tom Sharp, a former British frigate captain, and Tom tells me that the, one of the big challenges that he had when he was commanding uh, one, of, one of Britain's frigates that was, amongst other things, tasked with keeping the Russians away from uh, underwater infrastructure vital to the UK's interests is you know, simply what do you do? You have thousands upon thousands of miles of cables. I mean, to give you an example, one of the cables we were discussing in Toulon runs between Toulon itself and south of France and Singapore, which is a, a distance of many thousands of miles. So, And that passes through you know, countless different territorial waters and so on. So you have thousands of miles of cables to, to defend and protect there. And you have you know, a couple of warships and a submarine at the absolute most from the UK perspective. Now, when it comes to the Eastern Med, uh, Orange Marine tell me that they are operating normally with, if it's any sort of suggestion of risks or problems uh, they might encounter, uh, they normally operate with French Navy top cover. And I'm going to be speaking to the, the, the French in a bit more depth about this, hopefully, if they get back to me. But that could be a, a warship escort, that could be monitoring of the situation nearby with advice to tell them to you know, stop operations and get out quick because we can no longer guarantee your safety. There are a whole range of different protection measures and sort of layers around not only the cables themselves, but also the the ships and the personnel sent out to repair and maintain those. So, yes, the, un the undersea infrastructure world, it's a fascinating one. We do depend on it. Crystal Heidemann, the um, chief exec of Orange itself, the, the French telco, the, the, the sort of parent company of Orange Marine, the cable people, says that 99% of all global communications traffic passes through subsea cables at some stage 99 percent and if you consider how many financial institutions are trading making you know, digital orders for stocks and shares on the stock markets uh the likes of, of you and i 
browsing the internet, looking at websites based abroad or communicating with data centers that might be somewhere overseas. And there's a hell of a lot of global commerce. And I say, I will have full details on this, full statistics, lots of good crunchy facts in this weekend's Sunday Telegraph. So, uh, yes, good listeners, I, c- I commend my own feature to you and I strongly encourage you to uh, look out for it on Sunday. Thank you very much, Dom. Uh, no no problem, Gaz. No, you commend your own stuff away. Just on it, I mean, we here in the UK and to the US to a certain extent, we sort of, when it comes to undersea cables, we, we're, we're quite used to it because we're an island over here. And so most of our stuff arrives up in, in the uh, down in Cornwall, comes out of the drink there. But for kind of mainland Europe and folks elsewhere around the world, that it might it might not be such a big a big thing. And I just wonder for Ukraine, do, do most of their do most of their connectivity is that is that across land? Would that be across land? Because obviously it's blooming expensive laying these undersea cables. How much? How many of these things actually run through the Black Sea and 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 up and into Ukraine, or do they get most of their stuff over over sort of land routes? That's a, a great question, Dom. I think now I'm just going to have to sort of quickly rack my brains here there's certainly a large concentration of submarine cables in the eastern med running up into the black seas if you sort of visualize the map there you have that sort of global trade choke point up towards the north end of the suez canal running up towards turkey and the bosphorus strait uh, into the black sea proper uh, a lot of cables do run through that area serving those countries bringing comms from the black sea nations down into the sort of you might think of it as the main arteries of the submarine cable system but in terms of Ukraine's connectivity, now I have to confess, I'm not, <laughs> not the expert that I ought to be on exactly how much of their connectivity runs through there. I do know that the Crimea had a cable or perhaps a planned cable at one stage, obviously to plug into that. But most of the connectivity, I would imagine, is concentrated towards the west of the country. Certainly in years gone by, uh, Kiev was well known as emerging up and coming tech hub. So I imagine, I mean, obviously, you know, today the country is, is to a great extent reliant on Starlink, the, uh, the satellite communication system run by uh, Elon Musk's SpaceX uh, as a result of, of Russian attacks. So I think to, you know, over the last couple of years, it certainly declined substantially. But there is no doubt in my mind, I mean, even though there may not be a cable directly plugged into you know, Ukraine's central Internet box, I want a better way of putting it. When that data goes to the wider world, when you're trying to communicate with servers in Singapore, China, Australia, New Zealand, uh, I would imagine there's a fallback route to the western US going what you might call the long way round uh, east from the Ukraine or southeast from Ukraine and then across the Pacific. These cables are vital because so much traffic gets routed through them. And I could, I could come on and talk for hours about you know, the, the fascinating topic that is BGP routing and how internet traffic makes its way from one place to another through a whole variety of different uh, organisations and routing around damage and so on. But that's perhaps one for another day. But yes, even though there, there may not be that many cables specifically plugged into Ukraine, they will be depending on those as much as indeed countries like the UK here in London uh, and the US will be as well. Fascinating. Thank you. Any uh, any final thoughts? Uh, well, I've, I've, I've talked at great length about submarine cables and how important it is that everybody reads my feature in this weekend's Sunday Telegraph. <laughs> now, on a, on a slightly less lighthearted note, I think it is one of those topics that we really should be paying more attention to as a society. There's a whole discussion going on, that's always going on in the background, about submarine cables and how the costs of operating these things should be allocated. For the more tech-minded listeners out there, there's a big discussion in continental Europe at the moment about uh, net neutrality and 
who pays for the costs of maintaining and upkeep for these things? You know, the broad argument goes that big tech accounts for, I think, slightly more than 55% of all traffic over them. And when it comes to things like rebuilding Ukraine after the war, who bears the costs of that? How is that? How do we design that infrastructure? How do we install that infrastructure? How do we harden it to make sure that there is going to be no deliberate interference with it in future? So, yes, be mindful of the cables. Think of them snaking their way through the underwater canyons as they bring you your uh, your pleasant and light-hearted uh, cat videos and such like. It's more important than you think. During our US trip, David and Francis were in Washington with Katerina Stepanenko, Russia deputy team lead and analyst at the Institute for the Study of War. It's a fascinating listen where they talk about the fallout from Prigozhin's death and the impact on military bloggers and how, in turn, that's affected Katya's work. Here is the interview. Katya, thank you so much for your time today. It's a real pleasure to meet you. Uh, listeners will remember we've actually spoken before many, many months ago. Uh, so just for listeners, it might be interesting to go back and listen to that interview and now come forward and listen to this because I think we'll pick up on many of the same themes and we'll see how lots of what you've been looking at has changed in, in the past year. Would you just remind listeners, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you work on here at the ISW? Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to see you in person. So my name is Katerina Stepanenko. I am the deputy team lead here at the Russia Team Institute for the Study of War. I focus on Kremlin dynamics, the campaign assessments, mapping, as well as tracking all of the force generation issues. So anything pertaining to irregular forces, uh, mobilization, private military companies, and so on, among many other topics, especially within the Russian information space. Well, let's jump in uh, looking at Prigozhin, I think. It was one of the stories of the summer, the march from Moscow, the failed mutiny, and then just a few weeks ago, his apparent assassination. You have a particular interest in following his career and following what he was doing. Did the mutiny surprise you? Did how it played out surprise you at all? And how is what happened still sort of reverberating through the Russian elites? I think the mutiny was, in certain parts, a little bit surprising for sure. I think it was unexpected during the time period that it happened. But also, on the other hand, Prigozhin was placed in such a position where he had nowhere else to go, like a rat inside of a corner. He lost his importance after he withdrew from Bakhmut after seizing the city in late May. And then after that, his protection and his necessity kind of diminished. It was surprising because we didn't anticipate it to happen at such scale, but also we should have seen that coming, essentially, because... Prigozhin had no other option at that point. He was losing his importance on the battlefield. Putin no longer needed Wagner forces to fight for the city. And ultimately, the Russian Ministry of Defense was tightening the screws around Prigozhin's liberties and also trying to formalize a lot of irregular formations, which would include Wagner by July 1. So Prigozhin has always been very uh, hot-headed and responded really fast to a lot of things. So one can see how he would make a rash decision like this and, and go against the Russian Ministry of Defense to such degree. And looking at his assassination, talk us through that from your position here. What did you make of it? 
I think that it's something that, that there's different theories that definitely play a role with this. The first one is that the timing was very peculiar. It happened exactly two months after Prigozhin's mutiny. And there's definitely an element of revenge in this, that Putin didn't forgive Prigozhin for what he had done. But there's also, you know, an element of economics and especially the battle for the control over Wagner forces in Africa and the Middle East. And that Prigozhin decided to violate his decision not to show up on the front pages of the news for some time and appear in Africa filming himself in a kind of the same style that he had done when he was fighting in Bakhmut. I think that it was some sort of a combination of Putin coming to terms that this is the time to eliminate Prigozhin because he's returning back to his initial ways, his initial ways of promoting himself and promoting his forces, and also fighting against the Russian Ministry of Defense and causing that conflict, but then also trying to rebrand his authority in Russia But I think there's also some factors that play behind the closed doors within the Kremlin administration. There has been a lot of arrests that were super notable around right after Prigozhin's rebellion. And just finally on Prigozhin, it's not on the front pages, of course, anymore. Many people see it as a bit of a full stop, his apparent assassination. How do you think it impacted the Russian elites in and around the Kremlin? It definitely sent a signal that they need to self-center and know their place. One of the most prominent examples of this is Alexei Dumin, who is the Tula Oblast governor. He had been associated with Prigozhin in the past and had actually issued some statements about Prigozhin's death. And he was placed in a position where Putin was supposed to meet with him allegedly, on a certain day. But instead, Putin decided to send him to walk around and follow Sergei Shoigu, the Russian defense minister, signaling that, know your place, you're not going to be the next defense minister, as many were trying to make him, especially after Wagner's rebellion. So I think we're seeing a lot of instances where elites are shutting down. They're not really as outspoken as they used to be. For example, Kadyrov, Ramzan Kadyrov, the Chechen leader, released a selfie with uh, Putin claiming that he is his dutiful soldier and that he's always going to fight alongside Putin. And Kadyrov in the past had made some very interesting statements about the Russian military command, as well as Russian generals and their ineffectiveness and sided with Prigozhin. So the elites are turning to a quieter side. They're trying not to be noticed, not to be seen, not to be associated with Prigozhin. And that translates really well also into the information space. The information space, especially among Russian military bloggers, has been quiet on Prigozhin's death. So there has been no insinuations that the Russian Ministry of Defense was responsible for this. There was also no significant talks among big critics that Putin could have been behind this. And that is consistent with a lot of elites being quiet as well in terms of no one standing up and actively branding themselves as the Wagner fighters who are trying to avenge Prigozhin and Dmitry Utkin, the founder of Wagner's deaths. Prigozhin articulated frustration within elements of Russian society about the way this war has been conducted. And of course, one can break it down as to what elements he did articulate. But within elite opinion... They were never going to back him. He was too much of a maverick. But do you think there is anyone that you can see in the elite or any faction that is a threat to Putin? Or do you think it is too fragmented? 
think it is too fragmented. There are two clear factions that exist within the Kremlin circle. The first one is the ones that want to slow down the war, freeze the lines, rebuild connections with the West, restore Russian economy, and then maybe later on return back to the front lines. But their priority right now is to make sure that Russia doesn't sink uh, and doesn't commit more men to the front lines, doesn't drain more resources. The second faction of this is the hawkish group that wants to continue this war. We obviously don't have a clear understanding of who's who, but you can see some influences in the way that the Kremlin makes decisions and which proposals are getting pushed, whether it's on mobilization, whether it's on the way to treat the information space. And those factions constantly fight with each other, trying to get favor with Putin. We also have the same exact dynamic within Russian military commanders. There is a faction that supports Valery Gerasimov, the chief of the Russian general staff, and then the faction that despises him. And they're both pulling the strings, trying to get the Tsar to notice them. And it's kind of what Prigozhin was also playing in the past with some of his affiliates. But when Prigozhin was done after his mutiny and effectively after his death, that kind of side of, of pulling from some of the elites quieted down for some time, probably looking for a different opportunity at a later time to jump on and advertise their own interests. Am I to take from this then that you think the chances of another coup are extremely unlikely? And the reason I ask that is there have been some analysts, and I'm thinking of one particular who I won't name because it doesn't feel fair, who said that he thinks it's only a matter of time before there is some other coup or attempt against Putin or at least mutiny to show anger and frustration. I get the sense you're a bit more sceptical of that. Is that fair? I would say so. I, I think that we shouldn't hope for a coup. And I also want to preface that what Prigozhin did was not a coup. His target was not Putin. His target was the changes within the Russian Ministry of Defense. He wanted to establish his own people to a ministry that gives out equipment, that gives out payments, so that his forces would be benefiting from the state institution. He wanted unlimited access to prisoners, which he was cut off from. And so his big motion wasn't to undermine Putin, but instead blackmail Putin into agreeing on his demands, which is instituting some sort of change within the military command and the Russian Ministry of Defense. In, in that sense, I don't think that the prospects of the coup are likely in the near term, and we shouldn't hope for it. But there are some factions that are gaining some power from this. One of the examples is Rosguardia, which is picking up some of Wagner fighters, reportedly, and also had um, received access to heavy military equipment after Prigozhin's mutiny. So there are actors that are gaining power. There is also reports that some officials within the Kremlin presidential administration also were able to gain some control over the information space, which they haven't had before. So there has been a shift within the Kremlin and within the influences that Putin has around him. It's obviously really hard to tell from the open source, but it, it was sensible in terms of who is reporting now, the number of self-censorship that exists around just discussing what Russian Ministry of Defense is, and Prigozhin death is shaping a new environment, both in the information space as well as in the Kremlin. You've mentioned the mill bloggers and the information space quite a few times. Your colleagues told me that you coined the term mill bloggers. We spoke about that last time I interviewed you. Could you just talk us through how that space has changed over the past 12 months, 18 months? Who should we be paying attention to, who not? What do you make of how this space is evolving? 
Yeah, thank you for asking that. Mill bloggers is something that I've been following really closely since the start of the war. And they do provide a variety of different uh, insights, both what is going on within the Kremlin, the factions, and understanding the mentality that is going on in this whole pro-war movement. There has been a change since Prigozhin's death and Prigozhin's mutiny. A lot of mill bloggers are self-censoring. It's a common practice for a lot of Russian journalists or even officials to have a thought but not say it deliberately as to avoid any threats against your life, falling out of the window, that kind of thing. So we are seeing that a lot more mill bloggers stopped reporting on Russian military failures to the same extent that they used to. There's also several Kremlin initiatives right now to ban mill bloggers from posting or reporting on Ukrainian strikes on Russian territory and also on the occupied territories. So the general gist is... There is a lot more censorship that these mill bloggers within themselves have that they used to not under Wagner, which was Wagner telegram channels used to be so explicit in condemning and naming all of these generals that had messed up on something. There is one faction that is interesting, though, which is the Russian Airborne Forces. That is the group that still shows some insubordination to the Russian generals and the Russian military command, especially within the information space. So the culture of insubordination is not dying, and they're weaponizing mill bloggers to advance an objective, which is also likely to trigger command changes of some sort, but it's not to the same effect. We definitely seen some more arrests of mill bloggers, so notably Igor Girkin, a Russian ultranationalist, and some of his affiliates that used to repost him on a smaller scale have also been arrested. It does look like they're going after mill bloggers that are not popular or are not necessarily favored in the information space. So after Girkin's arrest, there were a lot of memes, a lot of jokes, because Girkin himself was not a liked individual among the bigger ultranationalist community. So it's not necessarily that they're going after bigger telegram channels that have criticized the Russian Ministry of Defense in the past and are continuing to do so, but more that they're going after people that the general public already doesn't really like much. You reference there how milli bloggers have changed over the course of the war, and I'm sure in part due to them knowing that they're being observed. How much has your own methodology had to change? And what is your methodology when dealing with this vast array of sources? How do you even approach such a vast swathe? Yes, they definitely have been shifting and changing throughout the war. Some mill bloggers got co-opted and the Kremlin had integrated them into human rights committees or mobilization committees. And so kind of giving them that power also enables that self-censorship where mill bloggers are now less inclined to criticize the Russian Ministry of Defense or the Kremlin. In other cases, some of them began aggressively advertising. So a lot of them turned to more monetary side of things. And there's reports that a lot of advertisement agencies are approaching these mill bloggers and they entirely changed their content because of it. But mostly it has been that they are reporting less and less on the way that Russians are fighting the war and shifting their objectives to highlighting the way that Ukrainians are fighting their war, which in the past was pretty heavy criticism of the way that Russians were conducting this uh, campaign. In terms of methodology, it is important to establish biases, right? The way that I work with this broad environment of ultranationalists is I see how they react 
to certain events, so certain controversial events. So in the past, it was a little easier because there was a group that really hated Prigozhin and hated private military companies and, for example, were really interested in the way that the Russian military doctrine was not being properly executed on the battlefields, and their whole agenda was not necessarily to put private military companies in place, but more to strive to get to the point where the Russian military doctrine is used in the battlefield to the right extent. So there's groups that you can form based on how they react to certain actors, how they talk about certain events, who they're trying to criticize or trying to uplift. So with Wagner-affiliated channels, obviously, there was a clear-cut promotion of Prigozhin. It was Prigozhin went to the front line and did this great thing. And so you can distinguish who is more affiliated with that. Obviously, there's a whole slew of Russian state-affiliated military bloggers that occasionally criticize the Russian Ministry of Defense, but usually try to promote official statements or provide commentary on publications, Western publications. The Telegraph actually comes up a lot in, in mill blogger discussions. It's good to know. Uh, there you go. So, <laughs> we will have to talk about that in a second. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's definitely setting up the comparison points. And then after that, it's easier to do a case study on who tries to align with what ideology and how they seem this war unfolding further. I had one question. Now I've got two questions. My first is, um, as you said, the, the milk bloggers since the death of Prigozhin are sort of self-censoring and changing what they talk about. Like, to what extent has that made your work here in terms of day-to-day updates, in terms of analysis, more difficult? If they're not telling you the information that you were used to getting, maybe. But then you mentioned that actually they're, they're now talking about what the Ukrainians are doing. So it, has it opened up a new sort of sphere of things you can talk about and think about? And then secondly, of course, you mentioned there that the milk bloggers talk about the Telegraph. So we have to ask, what do they say? <laughs> Of course. Yes, it does complicate some things. One of the examples that stands out is the strikes on Chornohar Bridge in, I believe, this summer, when a lot of mill bloggers just didn't want to talk about the damage and the destruction to the Russian logistics lines in southern Ukraine. And that was very surprising to us. It stood out because that was the first time that we really didn't see this public outcry that things are not going well. And in the past, you know, it would be every single minor strike, especially in occupied territories, that would generate massive influx of discussions about how the Russian military is failing to provide adequate air defenses, provide support for Russian logistics, and so on. It does make it challenging. We did lose some of our prominent Kremlin critics. So not mill bloggers that criticize only the Russian Ministry of Defense and the war, but more of the nihilist groups group that doesn't like the way that Putin is leading the country. So those are the people that we're losing. So for example, Girkin was one of them who would, with a microscope, look into the way that Putin is behaving and how he's acting and what decisions he's undertaking and criticize him for that. We don't have nearly that same category of people that we used to look into. And that does translate into what other meal bloggers are able to say. And I think that they have been shutting down a little bit more than ever before. That's fascinating. So you've got to give us the dirt then. What do they make of the Telegraph's reporting? Are they particularly... Do they, they have a thing against David Knowles? Is it me? That's what really <laughs> asking. Who, who, who pops up a lot? What do they say? They usually don't name names, to be yeah. honest with you. They use it 
the Telegraph as an institution. If, for example, you say something about Russians making gains on the battlefield, that they've advanced a couple of meters, they use that as a positive. That See, even a UK-based publication said that we did something good. That's the framing that they use. This is not new. This is something that they do for a lot of publications. They usually use any criticism of Ukraine or like Ukrainian counteroffensive to their advantage as well. But we see a lot more of that for other publications that tend to focus on the way that Ukrainians advance and the speed of the advance. But the Telegraph made it a couple of times when discussing mostly Russian advances and Russian successes and Russian methodology in the battlefields. And in that complementary sense. Damn. <laughs> That's not what we want to do. No, it's not. <laughs> um, if we didn't have mill bloggers, how would that change our collective understanding of this war, do you think? Because it is quite a new phenomenon. I think that it would definitely shift it in a negative way. I think that the objective that the Russian Ministry of Defense had since the start of this war was to have a completely shut information space. So very Soviet, no one knows anything. They release a statement every day that is the same format, maybe a combat footage here and there that shows the successes on the battlefield, but they were unable to do so. Mill bloggers have existed before this war. They did become the number one source, essentially, of information about the war throughout this campaign. And that's something that the Russian Ministry of Defense had repeatedly tried to eliminate. So the earliest signs we had seen were maybe June of last year, and Putin demonstratively met with a lot of mill bloggers actually behind closed doors. And then later on, we seen Putin actually tell the Russian Ministry of Defense to listen to some of its critics, which we found to be really interesting. So, yeah, I think that if we didn't have mill bloggers, a lot of the battlefield information and the complaints and the appeals that they're making to their own government to improve the situation on the battlefield would not be exposed. And we would just see the shiny picture that the Russian Ministry of Defense wants us to present. I don't think that this would be possible, however, uh, because the Russian government had not been really good at regulating some parts of the internet. They have not established conditions for information space regulations the way that, for example, China does. So Russians have freedom of access to the internet. They're able to express their opinions to some contrary belief. And so the Kremlin historically had issues regulating platforms such as Telegram. Kontakte is a little bit of a different story, but Telegram has been the Wild West for the information space. Given everything you've said about how the, the Kremlin wants to sort of shut information space, and given the fact that mill bloggers, many of them are more self-censoring, it's more difficult to find stuff out from them, do you think that at all could be an indication of more message discipline from supporters of the war in Russia? Slash and, do you think that's maybe what they're moving towards, a more shut information space, if there's just fewer opinions out there? Or is it just repression? I don't think that we're heading to entirely closed society. I think that where there's some channels that die down, others pick up. So around the time that Prigozhin was losing his credibility, for example, we saw a rise of what we call Russian insider sources. So it's these nameless accounts that leak information about different Kremlin officials. A lot of them were discussing Prigozhin and Prigozhin's reputation issues. So his corruption, his lies, his affiliations. And so that trend had picked up. So while we lose some mill bloggers, 
There is also inter-Kremlin fighting that is ongoing via these channels that leak information with the intent to discredit another party. You know, while some parts of the information space might not be the same, there are new parts of the information space that are bound to be explored. And I think we're going to continue to see the number one way that Russians like to fight, which is information space. They always try to discredit their opponents, for example, in the information space, and that culture is not going to die. From the information space to the geographical space, another area of expertise for you is, of course, mapping the battlefield. What limitations do maps have? And what I mean by that is, of course, we're used to looking at them and measuring the lines, seeing how they're shifting. But of course, it's very different on the ground. And I remember talking to several generals who say that in many ways, maps are helpful, but also very unhelpful to thinking about war. So I just wondered what your reflections were as somebody who's probably looked at more maps (laughs) than anyone else in this war this year. Yeah, there's definitely limitations to what we can see. You know, there's a misconception that you need satellite imagery to figure out what's going on on the battlefield. But a lot of maps is actually textual analysis. Uh, You can't understand the picture without understanding the context, what's going on on the battlefield. So if there's no context, it just will be an image, a picture that you can interpret whichever way. Sometimes you can't interpret what that represents. Maps can be deceitful. We don't know how many troops are located at a particular location by just looking at a border, or how dense their defense positions are, or how many mines there are, for example. Or for that matter, if we look at a Ukrainian counteroffensive in some sector that might appear small, we don't necessarily get a sense from a map of why it's important on an operational or even tactical level. So in that sense, there's a need for context, which is something that we're trying to do here at ISW. We not only provide maps every single day, but we also provide textual analysis to help readers understand why something is important. What do these positions actually look like? How does Russian defensive fortifications look like in Zaporizhia Oblast or around Bakhmut? And why it's so important? Which hills might be an issue for Ukrainian forces or Russian forces in their advance and so on? So there's a lot of textual analysis that needs to be integrated when looking at a map. I think the final thing to talk about is force generation. It's something we spoke about the last time we spoke together. Could you sort of bring us up to speed? What is the state of Russian recruitment to the armed forces and and the PMCs? Yeah, so Russian forces have been doing this integration campaign. So the Russian Ministry of Defense is merging irregular formations, which were previously volunteer forces. So they didn't have state benefits. They were not formally subordinated under the Russian Ministry of Defense. And irregular formations include private military companies, Russian combat reserve, Russian Cossack formations, and so on and so on. The Russian Ministry of Defense used to provide military supplies for them and equipment, but did not formally assume control over them. So they didn't establish commanders that would fight with these formations, for example. But ever since Wagner posed a threat to the Russian Ministry of Defense, they realized that they needed to formalize some control and integrate the regular formations into its contract service. So now the volunteers are signing contracts with the Russian Ministry of Defense, as well as private military companies. They all sign military contract service with the Russian Ministry of Defense. And that in turn adds up the numbers of contract servicemen that Russia, quote unquote, has, even though it's the same amount of forces that had previously operated on the battlefield 
they're just now technically under the Russian armed forces. It seems like the Kremlin continues to commit to the cryptopomolization campaign. Putin emphasized today, for example, the number of contract servicemen that Russia has in response to a question on the necessity for another wave of mobilization. We do have an assessment that Putin worries about the prospects of another mobilization. And it's a complex question for him because presidential elections are coming up in 2024. The previous mobilization wave has been pretty not popular for a lot of Russians. It's something that triggered protests and general dissatisfaction in the information space and the societal concern. And now we're approaching the fall conscription season, which is supposedly going to happen on October 1. And that raises, again, questions about mobilization because the processes for conscription are very similar to the Russian mobilization. You get a conscription notice or a draft notice that they look pretty similar. So that also raises some tensions, I guess, in Russian society as we embark on another conscription wave. Staying on that theme, one often hears people talk about the potentiality for Russia to be able to bring hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions soldiers to bear if things really get bad. That seems a very major oversimplification of the reality of mobilising forces. Can you just talk us through what it actually, what is Russia's capability in terms of mobilisation? I mean, how many forces has it brought to bear realistically and can it bring to bear? Because it seems to me that, that so much of this talk is just thinking in terms of having men on the ground. And that's not the way you fight a war, is it? It's about the other things that you bring into play as well. Yeah, I think that Russian officials in the past have claimed that their reserves are around like 25 million people. Any men that had served a conscription cycle or even went to a school that had some sort of a military education class technically counts as a reservist. But it doesn't mean that they're actually trained. And I believe some of the previous research conducted by other organizations indicated that like less than 5% of reservists go through training that is necessary to maintain that kind of reserve training, combat effectiveness, and so on. So all in all, Russia still has issues with training. They are capable of training around the conscription cycle worth of people. So that's around 150,000, maybe a little bit more when counting Belarus into the factor, which they've used in the past to train mobilized personnel. So their training capacity is still constrained. They have deployed a lot of their combat effective officers to fight in the war. So there's no trainers on the ground. They have to use Belarusian trainers. So going above that number already puts a significant strain on the training, but also bureaucratic issues, equipment issues. And we had seen that last year where a portion of mobilized personnel just went to the front lines with no training to reinforce positions they were not effective. A lot of them were killed. They suffered significant losses. Russia does not have capacity to bring up that reserve and maintain that reserve. So while they have it on paper, they still need to make significant improvements to their reserve system as well as their contract service system. It's a whole big mess. That is not to say that they're not trying to make improvements. They have been trying to make their conscription notice delivery systems more effective. Now it's harder to deflect from, say, a draft notice or a conscription notice because they have now made it on your phone or you can get a call and someone will tell you that you've you've been conscripted, for example. That had not existed in the past. You actually had to give someone a notice to their hand for it to count as if that they have now 
have the legal responsibility to go to a military recruitment center and so on. So they are trying to improve it. And there's definitely some improvements that are a lot more radical that some factions are trying to promote. So for example, some officials are trying to make mobilization or conscription deferrals less possible. So for example, if you're a student in college and you technically defer from conscription, there are some policymakers that want to make it even harder to do so. So they're trying to improve their bureaucratic system, but this is not going to happen in just one year, especially during wartime. Katja, thank you for your time. Lovely to meet you. Thank you so much. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, Please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear and Elliot Lampitt. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.